want to welcome you to want to welcome you to this episode of the Close Quarter Dad podcast, where I will be sharing with you a recording from the 2022 Child Safety Summit with my friend and professional survival and preparedness expert Toby Cowan. And Toby has been not only a mentor and instructor of mine, but also a friend for several years now. And we've got a, a history of him coming over to the United States and, uh, and working with communities of um, people who are interested in the topics that we're going to talk about. Uh, so we go deep into the survival continuum and topics that are going to be very important for you as a father to get some inspiration and some insights on what your next steps can be towards helping your child live a safe, confident, and prepared lifestyle. Toby's a dad. Uh, he has an extensive background in this topic, more so than most in the world. So you really want to listen to uh, what he has to say. This is a wonderful conversation. And as we are getting prepared for the September 2023 Child Safety Summit, I'd like to invite you into these conversations. You're going to mark your calendar for the second weekend of September where we're going to be hosting the Child Safety Summit, and there are going to be lots of conversations at the same level uh, as we have here with Toby today. So let's get it started. I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation. It's exciting. There's an incredible amount of information to be shared, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you. So please make sure that wherever you're hearing this uh, episode, you do leave a comment, get engaged in the conversation. And if at any time you want to join us over in the community at Close Quarter Dad, please feel free to do so at closequarterdad.com. Okay, let's get started with our conversation with Toby Cowan from the Child Safety Summit 2022. Welcome to the Close Quarter Dad podcast, discussions about raising your kids with confidence, safety, and resilience. I'm your host, Adam Mitchell, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's guest is not just uh, incredible at what he does, not only is he known all over the world for the work that he's been able to uh, provide and the experiences that he's been able to deliver to people uh, and the incredible amount of knowledge that he has, but I've been privileged and honored to have included him in a very selective list of people who I consider my teachers. And when Toby says something, I stop what I'm doing and I listen, whether it was from the work that he stepped into during the pandemic uh, and his anything that he puts up online, any video, everything in my life pretty much stops and I pay attention to it. And I'm asking you to do the same. In this hour, we're gonna spend together, we're gonna have a discussion that's really gonna be focused and targeted in on the work that you as a parent are doing with your kids because Toby, uh, is a father as well. So he understands the challenges that we collectively face together. So Toby Cowan, I want to welcome you here. I'm honored to have you. Uh, so welcome. Thank you so much. Absolutely delighted to be here and, and super happy that you invited me on and just proud to support the work that you're doing. It looks brilliant. Toby, I want to just step right into one of the most important areas of your teaching, and that's the four survival priorities. And Anybody who's done any work with you uh, understands this, they know this, but I'd like you for a moment to maybe unpack those and what they can mean and give some definition to uh, tethering that to our kids or um, what should we be looking at differently? Because I think we go to the most dangerous course of action versus what the most likely course of action is going to be. So I was wondering if you could step into that for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to sort of preface that, what I like to work with a lot of my teaching now is sort of models to structure things off. Um, because otherwise what happens is you can just gather a bunch of sort of information or techniques, but just not know where they fit. So it's like, yeah, I can light a fire sort of with the, the bow drill or fire by friction, but I just don't know strategically where that actually fits in. So we really like to introduce people to these structures and models because they now they understand not only the skills, but where they actually fit. So the four survival priorities is one of those that's sort of pretty much universally accepted and known. So it's a great structure model to work with because you're not going to find too much conflicting information around it. Almost every survival instructor in the world is going to have some 
form of that model on the go. So it doesn't matter who you train under, what school you're going to, this is going to come up. Now, what I would actually do is caveat at this point. Uh, so the last eight years, I actually teach now the five priorities of survival, but I'll explain why in a second. But we always start with the four and then understand where we have the fit. So the four priorities basically saying in any situation that you find yourself in a wilderness setting to uh, maintain ongoing existence, which is the definition of survival, we're going to have to cover off four aspects. That's fire, shelter, food, water. But depending on the situation we find ourselves in will be the order of priorities. So we don't say there are four priorities in this order. We say there is these four priorities. And one of the first things you'll need to figure out is what's the priority order? We'll come back to that in just a second. All right? So the question is, what's the fifth? The fifth I teach now is signaling, okay, as an actual priority, because if you're in trouble, the first thing you should want to do is let other people know you're in trouble and try to get help. So if we just leave it at the four, and a lot of people, when they come to fire, start to think about signaling then, they may have already invested a lot of effort and a lot of time into something that wasn't the biggest priority, which could have been making a call making a smoke signal, popping a flare, whatever the case may be in terms of signaling, okay? So whilst we can never put them in an order, what we can say roughly is food, even though you'll think about it first, often comes very near the bottom of the priority order and signaling is often gonna come very near to the top of the priority order, okay? Now, I'm just gonna give you one quick example for people that maybe don't understand, well, how would I need to prioritize this? A lot of the time, the environment's gonna do that for you. So one of my specializations is extreme cold weather survival and Arctic survival. So the cold is a factor I'm in and around. So if I was in a survival situation, you might think, okay, the heat from the fire is the most important thing you're gonna get, right? So fire is gonna be my priority. The thing is, if I'm on a two meter snowpack, out on, a, a, on an exposed lake, lighting a fire there is going to give me no thermal gain at all. It's all just going to blow away. And I'm going to start melting the snow pretty quickly and putting that fire out. So what I might need to do is actually dig out a shelter to put the fire in. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It could also be on dehydrated. So my priority is water, but in a cold weather environment, the only way I'm sourcing the water is melting the snow. So I've got to get my fire which means I need my shelter to melt my snow to get my water. So that's how I would prioritize. So even though hydration might be a priority, water would actually be the third step I'm going to take because the first two must be necessitated before that third step is achievable. Hopefully that, hopefully that wasn't too uh, convoluted. Absolutely. That makes great sense. Now, the, a couple things that I would like to sort of segue and, and carry those priorities, the five priorities into is using the wilderness example helps us to understand and kind of take some ownership over what those priorities are. Contextually, based on the situation, the scenario and the environment, those priorities we understand can shift around a bit. How though, when we talk about a radical change in environment, say for example, how would I take those priorities and teach them to a teenage child of mine who gets lost in a city? So this is the beautiful part with this model is it actually segues directly with our urban survival model. So there we have the seven pillars of preparedness and the first five pillars are those five priorities. Ah. And then yeah. that, that signaling just becomes signaling and communication. And then we have health and hygiene and personal safety. So we can leach these directly across and say, even in an urban environment, I'm just now slightly altering the context of what I'm trying to create in those priorities. So now it might not be about gathering wood to light a, a log fire, but just a means to heat my food or heat my home, which might be a gas burner or a grill or something like that. But we're still within that fire um, priority, if that makes sense, because the fire is going to protect us in, all, in, in terms of keeping us warm or make things sterile or cook our food or whatever the case may be. So it adapts really, really well across the environments, not only um, from the ecological perspective, perspective you know whatever environment wilderness environment desert uh topical tropical arctic but also within the urban environment 
Understood. So we go from we we go from the five the five principles to the seven pillars. And it sounds to me as though as we begin to talk about escalation of uh, potential threat or risk, so too do those pillars become more of a priority to understand. And that understanding comes in how we maneuver uh, the, the which of those becomes more important to focus on now. Am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. Great. Another question I had was mindset and the will to survive. And I really wanted to ask you this question. I was reading an old book and the kind of question popped up to me. And I said, does this type of training create a stronger will to survive because you know that you've got the confidence, the training. Uh, one of the things that I like to teach is how to communicate via experience with your child. Example, you've done the work that we're just talking about. You've worked with your 13-year-old your daughter. You've gone out in the woods. You've gone on hikes. You've created some scenarios with her. You, and, but something happens. You're on a family vacation at Yellowstone Park. She gets separated from you and it's getting dark. The window's closing quickly. You've gone past that five minute window. You've created a point last scene. You've done all the things. But one thing that's very important is that you're able to communicate because through doing the work, she knows how dad is, what, dad, what steps dad's going to be taking, how he's going to be contacting, what's going on. On my side, dad has a child identification kit. He's kind of, he's done all that. He knows who to, you know, what the ranger station number is. He's able to move quickly, contact family, take all the right steps. So this in a situation, in a dire situation, it increases the will to survive through training or is the will to survive in that type of mindset training something that maybe young people are born with? Is it part of their behavioral and experience process? Is it just something they have or don't have? Uh, I'd like you to maybe talk a little bit about that because it is really important. I think you'd agree. Yeah. Um, so survival psychology is actually one of my favorite topics to, to get into because mm. it's so important. And I'm, I'm just going to sort of phrase around a couple of things here. Any survival manual you read, anyone within the first 20 pages is going to specify explicitly and often multiple times how important survival psychology in the will to live is. And then promptly never mention it again. Right? <laughs> because they dived into, you know, specific techniques or, you know, the, the author's ego or whatever the case may be. Mm. So there's part of the problem. Training done right should absolutely increase individual resilience. Um, absolutely. But a lot of this training is done quite badly, sadly. So there's missed opportunity. Now, any, anyone that gets any amount of people to spend any time out in the woods is going to have my support and have my vote. All right, because it's so good for us. But of course, now you're coming to different quality levels of training. And right. so done right, um, a good course should absolutely increase your survivability, not only by knowledge, but those things that you mentioned, the confidence, the competence, the understanding, the ability to, as you, as you push that threshold of where your panic point is, then you can remain calm for longer until hopefully you get to that point that not that much phases you. And when it does, you can quickly recognize and self-soothe and manage yourself through that situation by typically basic breathing exercises or um, um, sensory awareness exercises, whatever the case may be, uh, and ground yourself back in the moment and be like, you know, panic isn't helping right now. So let's not, and let's get on with it. And also from the parental side of thing, it's that, um, what we call the duck syndrome, right? You, you have that ability to grace, to, to, to look beautiful and graceful above the water, even if you're paddling like mad underneath, all right? So you might think the situation's die, but you're not projecting that into the family unit that's with you or the group that's with you, because as much as calm is contagious, so is panic. And somebody panicking in the group is incredibly undesirable. Um, and we'll do that in training sometimes, you know, for, for my advanced course, I have a lot of plants, a lot of moles, uh, a, a lot of like, you know, um, play students. And I'll just give them directions of what I want to happen in the course. On this day, you're going to get hypothermic. On this day, you're going to panic on, you know, and just see how the group deals with that and then learn from that in this sort of after action report summary, whatever the case may be. So I want to answer the question categorically. Training can help in this. Yes. 
but you sort of get what you pay for a little bit. So it, right. you've got to be thinking about the right level of training. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky because then we say, okay, the, 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 the really edgy, hard, tough tactical training is what we need to get that resilience, right? And for adults to a point, I'm sort of on board with it, but this is in essence, the worst possible thing you can do with children because it just makes it in hard and intimidating and not fun. And you're gonna get very, very limited buy-in, okay? So the early stages have got to be that fun-filled aspect. So they like it and they thrive. Then they want to be challenged because this now feels just too easy and too comfortable. And as they go and grow, they, they want to be like, oh, but dad, I can take it. Come on, you know, let's let's try without this or the other. Uh, let's leave the tent behind and take a tarp instead, or let's leave the tarp mm. and, and build the all natural shelter. So let them sort of lead in that progression that you don't need to sort of throw them into Navy SEAL boot camp <laughs> to, to make your child resilient. It's much better off to start them at a, at a much uh, gentle, positive engagement level so they enjoy being outdoors then they want to go out more and they love what dad's doing so they listen to what dad's saying more and then you start to bring in either nature will provide it for you you'll just get some tough conditions and you're just gonna have to deal with it or you can start to engineer those things in a little bit and just put that challenge down you know when angel that's my daughter she's 17 now when she was five it was just all fun filled by seven i started to give her some challenges you know but what if you don't have your knife? How are you going to solve that problem? Uh, what if you didn't have this now? Uh, okay, you've only got two billy cans instead of one. Uh, but it was still fun and it was still satisfying, even though she's now doing some quite advanced applied problem solving, right? Or she left it behind. She just didn't pack. She didn't listen. She didn't pack properly. Now you don't have it. Oh, well, hey, how about consequences to your actions? Let's, let's buy that for the weekend, right? <laughs> Wow. So that was that was incredible. You actually answered two very long term questions that I've asked myself in my own training, in my own work. I've often wondered about and uh, you really just uh, boy, you, you, you knocked it out of the park on a couple of those answers. And it really set me in a, in a new direction with a way I think about a couple of things. I want to share with you uh, experience with my daughter. And I know a lot of the dads will be like, well, you know, just getting my daughter to go outside, let alone deciding whether a tent or a tarp is such a, like just getting her off the phone. And, and I know these are like kind of basic parenting one-on-one things, but one thing I, I, I started to notice, Toby, I took my daughter out when she was about eight years old for the first time. We went for some, some, some really light hikes and we did trail marker spotting and that was kind of a fun activity. Uh, but then when she knew that I was kind of doing some work with really trying to study uh, local medicinal plants, she asked to join me on one of those little, just little hikes on a Sunday morning. We went out and she had a lot of fun. And I told her that I'd like to start something new with her. And I, I'm not that familiar, or then I was not that familiar with the different types of uh, mushrooms that grow in our area. So I downloaded an app and I asked her if she'd want to join me on some mushroom trips and just, hold on, let me take that back. Some, some, fungi some, foraging. Some, some, some fungi recognition hikes. Uh, <laughs> and that became her thing. And what I noticed after we did a couple dozen of these, she was recognizing those. She was starting to recognize different types of trees that they grew on. And then when, the, when, the, when I really took a pivot and I noticed something different, she began when she started Hey, dad, look, there's an owl. And we, she spotted an owl up in the trees. Now she started going, her, her field vision, her court vision began to expand. And I was like, ah, okay, this is great because now her peripheral fields, she's going beyond and wider and she's starting to pick up little indicators or rhythms of nature. Yeah, and I would invite uh, any, of the, any of the men who are listening to this to kind of step into what Toby's talking about here and understand what that long game is going to create for the children. Would you, would you agree with that, Toby? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I had a sort of two adulthood strategy for Angel uh, from, from a very, very young age. And that's the thing, you know, it's the, the classic question, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago and it's the second best time today? So you want to yeah. catch your kids young on nature engagement. Um, mine 
last autumn he was at, at his nursery school and they have a forest section to the playground out the back uh he's 14 months old and out just picking blueberries in in the in the outdoor playtime and eating them every day for like three weeks i'm picking up from school and he's like uh, purple brilliant you know you just can't substitute that but i also understand he's incredibly food focused so like what he and he's he's only two and a half years old but his training's already a year underway like go with what interests the child yeah. but if you if you got him a bit late you don't know so like you said that was a great example just just sort of pepper pot it don't be like we're gonna do this because you just get that pushback it's like just try it and see what fits same with sports isn't it you might really want them to play volleyball but they love swimming or you know so you're just going to give them exposure to some different things and see what resonates fire lighting is classically one that that, that gets engagement you know i i love creating pyromaniacs and i say it only half <laughs> um and so that's that thing especially because it's so forbidden for children in the modern world like mm. once dad actually trusts you to like go set something on fire this just becomes like mad fun crazy uh, but then there's also a huge responsibility and it doesn't take long before you, you sense that I can really hurt myself here. Same with like edge tool work, knives, axes. It doesn't take a couple of slips before kids start to really respect the tool and the technique because they're, they're understanding at a very visceral level. Yeah, this is a powerful thing here. So I think that long term view, absolutely right. That spread bet until you find a thing that really resonates and go gently deep on that and then the magic starts happening because like you say ultimately the natural environment is all interconnected so even if they're like super interested in fungi they're going to have to start looking at plant recognition and tree recognition and seasonal changes uh, in weather patterns and geology and substrate and all this other stuff to get good at the fungi recognition and so then it all starts to come together and they find that the new passions it might be ornithological you know with the birds or it might be you know with the trees or the plants and and you know we can study this our entire lives and still have nine nine thousand percent to go when we hit the grave so there's always going to be something that they can get fascinated with but that journey is going to be a much easier sell from a parental viewpoint if if the kids kind of tugging on your shirt and being like let's go let's go let's go instead of like you're like like you say dragging them off the couch enforcing a phone switch off now we're going to go outside and have have some sort of daddy daughter time or daddy son time that, that it's it's tough from the beginning if that's what it's going to take because you missed the early window okay do it but then you better deliver if you're dragging them off the couch and making them that's right the that's phone, right and you better knock it out the park otherwise you're not going to get many goes at it you know yeah toby a couple things i noticed uh when when the, having these experiences with my daughter is that there was one time when we were in the woods and then all of a sudden the birds just went poof, and they like flew they took off and it wasn't because us but usually her response would be to look up in the trees and be like wow did you see that but she looked up in the trees and then she looked around she went back to horizon line and then she looked around and she was wondering if there was maybe a deer or something and those little itty bitty changes. Then the next uh, stage I noticed, and this was about when she was, she was a little over 10 years old, she started asking me really cool questions. She noticed about, she noticed how vultures circled low versus hawks circling high. And she wanted to know what the difference is and what does that mean? And that motivated me to be like, oh, I, I got to figure like, <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> bring bring her back into this learning experience with dad and, instead of being like, well, the shamans say, <laughs> but but like go in and learn myself and then and, and bring her into that learning experience. So there's a lot of great opportunity there. So I just want to say something specifically on that point, if I can, because yeah, the, what you specifically mentioned there is, is an aspect of bird language. And bird language is a foundational tenant of nature literacy, which is something I'm teaching extensively now in the mm. rewild yourself concept, because a lot of people, especially post pandemic, are wanting to reconnect in a positive manner with the nat natural with nature but sort of just don't know how to they're, they're sort of going out into nature but they just don't know what to do when they get there and so nature literacy is a great way to start having that meaningful conversation with the natural environment now we've basically got an adult program on this right now and the reason being and a lot of adults get very very excited about this and be like this is absolutely brilliant and i think my kids kids are going to love it and i can't wait to start rewilding them and the point i make is no they're already wild 
we just put them through this conditioning process starting in school that that crushes that wildness out of them and, it, and induces conformity all of these skills all of these skills the the ability to track the ability to to recognize bird language are hardwired in us and so children it's there all we're doing with adults i'm not teaching anyone at this point we're just reconnecting that neural circuitry that's disconnected basically as a coping mechanism of living in in a modern life and a modern world because to have the sensory awareness at the level that works in nature is overwhelming your senses in an urban environment because there's just too much movement too much noise so we basically suppress unknowingly subconsciously suppress these um, um the our awareness of things and nature turns it back on again and so that was a great example you mentioned there that she's she's figuring it out she's strengthening that circuitry and then she's got those specific questions because it's like now i've got a point i just now now i need that mentoring and that was historically from our tribal ancestry the elders role wasn't it the grandparents raised a lot of the kids because yeah. they had the time and the knowledge that as the child made that great connection of this is different why they were the it could have been the shaman or they were the elders with the knowledge to explain why with authorities so that the child would accept that answer and then learn and grow from there right sorry that that's was a perfect bit of a segue, but i just i just think it's really nice to know that that actually exists no you know i i i mean i know that i agree with that i say that but when i was telling myself i'm like is this something i taught or is this the result of what we're doing together but you're 100 percent right and i you know i i am in alignment with you there this is something that we all are naturally born with. It's part of what makes us human, but it has been suppressed. It has been over, it has been buried down deep uh, because, I mean, we could list the reasons, convenience, uh, technology, whatever, comfort. Uh, but yeah, thank you for that reminder. I appreciate that. How then, how then as someone who, not only from your uh, military leadership background, not only as a you know, leader in your courses and your training that you've been doing your entire career, but also as a parent, how do we now take these, uh, these, these five principles and seven pillars of survival and apply them into a family unit now and, and actually uh, how would a father step into this, this understanding now that we've gotten to in this conversation and look more at the macro of, of of a team and looking at does a fit does a does a dad look at the family as a team or do they look at a group of individuals in their own roles what would you say to that it's a great question um ultimately you're going to go with what you've got so ideally mm. you've created a team because a team is 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 far more adaptive and and dynamic and flexible if i've just got a bunch of individual competencies they might be brilliant at what they do, but it doesn't mean that they can work together. So even they're brilliant at what they do, we've got no group cohesion, and that's problematic. I'm just going to step back real quick here um, from the summary point of a lot of our wilderness survival courses and definitely all of our urban survival courses, which typically are really quite robust. There's three things that people struggle with, and they never expect to, and it's these three things that consistently get them and, and this is to the extent of people even kind of just leaving a course because they can't cope right dehydration sleep deprivation group dynamics right those are the three things that are going to get you because dehydration why because we're not used to being without water because it's so convenient and it's so aware it's so everywhere we can just never imagine being without it and as soon as the tap doesn't work we don't know what to do <laughs> And very quickly, you're getting detrimental effects. Similar with sleep deprivation, we're, we're, we're over cuddled, we're over coddled, and we're used to having entirely too much uninterrupted sleep. And so the minute we start to interrupt our sleep, we, we deteriorate. And that's where the, the survival psychology comes in, because you actually can operate on very, very little sleep as long as you train for it, or as long as you've built that confidence and competence for it, um, way more than you realize. And any new parent with a newborn knows this, right? you never sleep the same again and uh, there's there's your training so you're already well on your way for training the fact you've got kids on that one but then the group dynamics is super important so as a parent i want to build that team because we can always upskill we can always learn things we can always bring in additional knowledge but the ability to work together as a comprehensive team is 
invaluable and unreplaceable. You can't buy it. You've, you've built it or you've developed it or you've endorsed it or you've empowered it. So I'll take what I've got. And that's all my leadership background says you work with the group and you try to improve them. But if you, if you give me a choice, <laughs> which one would I rather have? Lower skilled individuals, better group. Higher skilled individuals, no group dynamic. I'll take the low skill, better group every day of the week. Fascinating. Is there a, uh, so, so two questions come from that, Toby. The first is, um, have you seen a different in the high, difference in the hierarchy of those uh, diminishments or, or do you see group dynamic always is number one? That's where, that's where the first group starts to go. Second is dehydration and then third is, would you see that one comes over the other or does that depend on the community of students you're working with? Yeah, it, it will really vary from course to course. Uh, okay. And sometimes nature will decide for you. You know, we were down in Croatia the last course we did, and it was like 29 degrees Celsius. I, I don't know how many drafts in Fahrenheit that is. Sorry, I can't work in it. It's hot. Uh, it's exposed. <laughs> you know, so like yeah. one day in, everybody's starting to struggle. And they, they had their techniques. They'd put out their tops beautifully to collect the rain. Didn't rain for five days. Like, where's your backup? Where's your other technique? Uh, so we're scrubbing around in some sewers. We're getting some really gunky water. And it's like, okay, get your life straw out, get into it. You trust your kit, right? No one wants to drink it. Like, you know, uh, and, and so that was very quickly, we got into dehydration issues on that course because it was just, it was just so hot and there was just no ability to source water or none that the students could come up with at that time. But what I would say is group dynamic issues come in every single course. So even if they manage, manage their hydration and manage their sleep, there's always going to be some group dynamic um, highlights, some, some real wins or some problems. So group dynamics is the consistency throughout. So even if you're not suffering from dehydration, sleep deprivation issues, group dynamics can absolutely catch you out. And of course, if you are getting dehydration and sleep issues, that just deteriorates the group dynamic that much more quickly because now people have fallen asleep on the job or are not prioritizing doing certain activities and tasks because they're too tired or they're doing it sloppily or poorly because they're dehydrated and that's affecting their mental acuity so they they go sort of very hand in hand but if you're just going to tease one out as a consistent point to watch for group dynamics is absolutely it i had a situation here in my part of new york and and by the way you just mentioned croatia it just dawned on me that um Toby, you're not coming at us here on this in this conversation from, you know, Sussex, England or something. You're actually uh, in Sweden, right? Correct. Yeah, in the and, far north of Sweden, just inside the Arctic Circle. Yeah. yeah. So you're not just talking the talk, you're living the talk. Um, I, we had a situation here in New York some years ago where we had a massive blizzard that came through in October. And what that did is it put a lot of weight on the trees and the winds, the ground had not frozen yet and the roots blew. And we experienced a power outage, uh, unlike, I mean, I've been through a lot of power outages, but this one was definitely one of the tops in my life in uh, almost 50 years. Uh, what I witnessed though, was uh, the community after about the 13th day began to, things, things got tense. Uh, National Guard was here. There was a checkpoint there for where people would go to to pick up food and supplies. Uh, it, 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 you could see the rate of deterioration among people's uh, just the, the psychology and, and kind of the group dynamics and how they're working together. And even in my own family, where my kids would become very frustrated, very quick, and I was I was able to keep it together. And the power came back on, of course. But it was a little laboratory of, you know, what if this was more long term? What if there was a grid uh, issue of some sort? What would be in that? What would be one or two uh, skills that you could point to us sharpening or techniques that we may not have thought of as parents for our families in those situations where you might say, hey, look, you get prepared all you want with your bins of food that you're buying on Amazon. but in group dynamics for the safety of your family you need to consider at least these two things what would they be toby so first and foremost i'd say is, is communication skills mm. and you're going to need a suite of these um and different tools to go with that 
and, and you're going to want to practice a lot. Uh, and that's the great thing. Every conversation ever, you can practice your communication skills for better or worse. And, you know, for any of us who've been in a relationship for any length of time, you know, you know the things you can say to your spouse that's going to get a reaction. <laughs> you know the things you can say to your spouse that's actually going to calm them down, which isn't calm down, right? We, we already know these triggers. We just need to get more disciplined in how we use them because we're all emotive. Yeah. Uh, and so often our emotion trumps our communication skills. So that would be my second point that as much as you can collect communication tools, you've got to regulate your emotions so you can actually use them. So one is a sort of external skill. How am I going to have this interaction now? <clears throat> and with teenagers, that can be almost hostage negotiation, you know, and that's a good course <laughs> to go on. <laughs> but then the internal is, you know, um, and Rory Miller, as you know, a very good friend of mine and critically acclaimed author, has this beautiful phrase that you can never de-escalate somebody else until you de-escalate yourself first. Yeah. And so sometimes saying that to be like to the child or to your partner, you know, I, I'm just going to have to calm myself down before we have this conversation. Or can you just give me 30 seconds? I just, you know, need to go outside and breathe or scream or punch something or break something or fire the gun, whatever the case may be. Um, sorry, I don't know why my camera's gone off there. No worries. Getting back. Um, you know, whatever the case may be, we've got to sort of be able to regulate ourselves in not only in the moment, in the entirety of the situation. Right. Because if you're just going from moment to moment, you're still operating at sort of crisis level, whereas you want to be operating at um, strategic, sustainable level. Uh, and so you need to be able to regulate your emotions for a prolonged period or know after X amount of time, I'm going to have to step out this situation and, and, you know, calm myself or let the rage out or whatever the case may be to, to, to recenter yourself to go back into that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people, as they're listening, if they have a, a heartfelt internal conversation, will recognize whatever lockdowns or, or paramedic pandemic policies you went through, a lot of this is going to resonate with them immediately of like, yeah, that's, that's where a lot of my problems stem from, that I, I was unable to regulate my emotive state in a long-term sustainable manner, and that manifests itself in all sorts of negative outcomes. Yeah. That's important. I know in a lot of your teaching and training uh, and a lot of the stuff that we're going to kind of pivot into some of your more recent work here in a second, but that communication not only just goes within your family, but the importance of having a neighborhood or an inner circle communication network and roles within that, how critically important that is. I mean, that is a whole, I mean, we that you could write a book on that, uh, but just uh, sort of preface that discussion for later, uh, you would agree that you know when we're when we're in our preparedness, not only do we have to have those conversations with ourselves and understand how we're going to show up in those points of tension, but also be able to expand that goal of uh, better communication to beyond the family unit to an inner circle neighborhood or community of trusted uh, 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 partners and friends. How, do you want to say something a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I just, I just, I'll preface your preface and then I'll answer your question. Just to understand the power of conversation, just imagine for the strongest relationship you have that could be, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, your parents, you know, a spouse, loved one, dear friend, you are aware in one short conversation you could end that entire relationship just by that's, saying the wrong yeah. thing in, in an yeah. irrecoverable manner. That's, that's the power of conversation communication in both directions. That's the negative, but you know, in a sentence, you can talk someone out of killing themselves. It's that positive power as well. Typically it takes longer, typically it takes more, but you know, if, if we get it right and we get the person at the right moment, that one sentence can change their entire life for the better. Right. So there's that. Now, here's where we start to see, you know, if, if communication is the sort of the, the trunk or the pillar, 
now we start to get to the branches a little bit, isn't it? Because yes, we've got to have those communication skills in the family unit. We've got to have those communication skills in that small internal community of trusted sources. And we've got to understand the power or the lethality of communication outside of that. So there's some people I'll want to tell some things and there's some people I will want to never know certain things. All right. And if we're now getting into that tense neighborhood situation, you telling your neighbor, well, hey, we're having a pool party over here and it's fine because I spent 20 years prepping, check me out, go. Yeah, you know, that's right. It isn't going to do you any favors because <laughs> there's going to be a bunch of people turning up very, very soon saying, okay, Adam, great that you were well prepared. Like, let us all participate in that, you know? And you, you then just created your own problem, quite simply, because you over communicated. So, Selk has a beautiful rule on this that you should always be gathering more information than you're releasing. And for, for you who's listened to many of his interviews, you understand he is a man of very few words. I, I do a lot of the yeah. talking. And that is just a life skill of his. If he can answer it in a facial expression, he won't use a word. If he can answer it in one word, he'll use one word only. If it needs more than one word, it will be like three to six. And that's pretty much it. And if it needs a long talk, he looks at me and he'll be like, Toby, because he doesn't want to <laughs> talk, you know, yeah. because he's just he's so skilled at it. Right. So I'm just yeah. his pet parrot in a way, you know, and it's kind of, I, I said, oh yeah, tell Soko really likes my knowledge. No, he just doesn't want to talk because he doesn't, every time you're talking, you're giving up information is his rule. So do think a little bit in the cautionary side as well, that if you're going to put it out there, like, hey guys, I, I can fix this. I can help in this situation. Everybody come to my house. Well, they just might. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it, that speaks to some of the recent content that uh, both of you have been discussing, which is your trusted sources for information of what's going on outside your view, like what, what's going on in other parts of the world or, and, and by not talking so much and not in, you, you enable yourself to be a more trusted source. And the long game with this power of communication that we're discussing allows you to create relationships and trust within those relationships like I feel pretty confident that in, you know, in some type of private forum uh, and whether it's just you and I, I'm, I will feel comfortable asking you some questions and you probably feel comfortable giving me some answers that only you have insight to. Uh, but if you knew that I was, uh, you know, a talker or I just, you know, I was unstable with that communication, you might resist from that. And I've heard that a lot in some of the, um, you know, that, that, that the importance of recognizing that. Uh, intelligence uh, in some of your recent talk. Do you want to you want to share a little bit more about that? Did I, was I accurate there? Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll say this: if we're looking at sort of formal courses on communication, understand this: there's not an active talking course, but there is an active <laughs> listening course. <laughs> right? it's a great Does point. that tell you where the importance is? And so, great point. Listening is a skill and an art. And, you know, I'm somebody that, you know, I did seven years in the intelligence community and military intelligence. And one of my specializations was human, human intelligence. So that is exploiting people for information as opposed to technical, you know, some of the other intelligence, SIGINT, signals intelligence, which is a technical exploitation. This is now working people. And, you know, I was surrounded by some of the, the, the most accomplished, highly trained operatives that exist. And going to the bar with these guys and girls was just amazing. Because either no one would talk, <laughs> right, or the really good one would just would just own the entire space. I mean, I remember one colonel I served under. It was it was it was almost like a magical power. You just couldn't not tell this guy your life story. It was just, and I never figured how he did it. It, it but he just he just set the scene so well that any question he asked you you would just give so much detail in the answer. That's why he's a colonel in military intelligence, by the way, mm. you know? So, um, yeah, just, just to add a little bit on the point that you made there, um, it, it is disproportionately powerful. You know, you can own all of the equipment to survive and all of the techniques to survive, but being unable to communicate, especially in an urban environment, or communicate badly or communicate inaccurately, um, that's a real problem. So that's why we heavily weigh those communication skills. And that's where that fifth priority signaling, as you remember, as it became a pillar of urban survival, it was signaling slash communications. And mm, so signaling yeah. is the hard skill. 
the ability to operate a radio or a walkie-talkie or jury rig a phone or use Morse code or whatever the case may be. And the communication is the soft skill. How do you actually talk? And again, remember, 85% of communication is nonverbal. So it's not just right. about the power of voice. It's all how you hold your body, your facial expression, your tone. Remember I said about regulating emotion? You know, the words can come and my face can, can tell a different picture. Can it not? That's right. All right. You know, we've all had that female in our lives that's been like, no, no, it's, it's fine. It's not a problem. Yeah. If I'm just listening to the words, it's fine. It's not a problem. But the body language is telling me <laughs> it's most definitely a problem. And, and, and I'm, I'm responsible for it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. This is where, uh, and again, this is also hardwired into children. Um, we can lie with our words, but it's very hard to lie with our actions. Um, and of course we have the, the whole ethical concern about, about lying to our children, whatever the case may be. Um, so this, this is important stuff. Uh, and the great thing is this isn't the things that you need to go away to the woods at the weekend to work with necessarily. That actually needs to be our quiet time. We need to calm, calm and quiet in the woods. But every day, all day, in and around the house and the workplace, you can work these skills and you can improve and you can practice. Um, and, and see if you get caught. That's the fun part we do on some of the urban interview stuff. It's like you're going to go strike up a conversation with a complete stranger and see how you can long it for and how, hold you can, how long you can hold it for and what information you can get out of them. Awesome. And there it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love how we started this conversation where, you know, I remember, you know, going through those and have held very closely the uh, the the four survival priorities. And now you, we began this conversation with, well, hold on, there's a fifth. And this is why it's so important. And it recalls a lot of the episodes that and the discussions that you and Selko have had about this topic. And I love how we went full circle and ended on this as being so critically important, whether it's uh, talking to a, you know, a, 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 talking through a fight that your child had in school with the principal in the school administration, and is child protective services going to get involved, or are you going to? Is your child just going to have a day suspension? That just one thing right there will affect the trajectory of your child's future. So being, and, and I would consider that like what we're talking about. This is one example that we wouldn't even consider important at survival. But in very much, it is about the life of that child and how you're going to show up for it. So uh, I think that this, that has been extremely useful. And I love how we went full circle. Um, Toby, I have two more questions. I want to be sensitive of your time. But one is a pressing question that I've had in some of the uh, recent topics that uh, you and Selko have discussed. But we've mentioned Selko's name a couple of times. Would you mind just explaining a little bit so that those of the listeners yeah. and the viewers who haven't seen him who he is? Absolutely. So Selko Bogovic is a, a very good friend of mine uh, and somebody I've had the fortune to work with um, in partnership for the last 10 years. And just as you said in the introduction, uh, and thank you for those kind words that you regard me as one of your instructors, Selko was one of mine and is one of mine. You know, I, I learned my urban skills um, in the main from him. And he's basically based down in the Balkans, uh, which is an area 30 years ago saw an extended prolonged conflict. Um, that actually resulted in a genocide legitimately. And whilst he lived out the war in a variety of different capacities, both as a refugee and as a soldier, the most notable time was he was in one of the cities that was besieged for over a year. So it was completely ring fenced by the enemy. All regular services were cut off. You know, every day was literally a mad fight for survival in some of the worst conditions that you could imagine. And going through that year, they went through the brutality of the winter all the way through to the intensity of the summer uh, full circle. And so he's been incredibly benevolent in the last 25 years to share a lot of stories and examples, highly contextual, highly applied, highly authentic from his time and his journey since then, because he basically started his preparedness journey at the end of the war. He was an 18 year old uh, uh, guy when the war started. And so he just learned, he just existed on his wits basically. And then sort of the learning came after what could he have done different or better. So absolutely fortunate to class him as a friend. Uh, we do a lot of work together uh, often, uh, you know, as travel opens back up, we typically run two to three, year, three courses a year actually in person in Croatia because there's still a lot of war damage in the country that's very, very relevant to take people to looking at the full realm of survivability. So Selco is there 
Um, he's been putting out product for years now, so he's got a great yeah. range of books. I'd highly endorse and recommend. We have our Patreon page, which you're going to mention a little bit later on. And, yep. you know, the great thing is not only is it hard-won information, but it's all contextually based because we have to be honest, within the preposphere and the survival community, there's a lot of people just kind of guessing at this or like book smart and assuming that's how it is. And they've never really actually put themselves out in challenging situations or in field-based conditions, or they're just selling you something quite simply. And so the, the quality of their information is at best low, at worst fatal, because they just they don't actually know what they're talking about. So that's what I love with Selka is it can be a very trusted source because it's bringing it from a place of intense authenticity. Yeah. Uh Absolutely. And I can say that uh, what you just said about that is going to help pivot right into my question. But I do want to just bookmark, I was, uh, I was present in his early days of the SHTF school, when he was just a blog. And his, his writing and his blogs, a little bit tough to read sometimes, but they were they completely transformed how I approached the concept of uh, of survival and it was just fascinating i mean his books and his and his work has just been uh, incredible so uh, yeah just the the patreon page that you guys have the work that you do together like i was telling you before the call that was uh, you know that's that, that's right up there with my vitamin d vitamin d and my vitamin c and my turmeric in the morning it's like i have to make sure that every time you guys drop something on there it's uh, everything goes to a stop and i listen um recently though in one of the episodes you discussed something that i feel is uh, really important and needs more uh to have more of a, a light shine on it and that was the topic of expectations and survival situations and I'd like to hear, Toby, your perspective on uh, parenting and how parents have to consider better alignment. Uh, Selko used, it when talking about expectations, he said fantasy to reality. Uh, and he stated how we need to quote unquote, unblur uh, man-made and natural catastrophe, uh, as you may recall. And I found that to be a really important topic, uh, but yet it's not ever really often realized that you kind of stepped into that a little bit here when you were talking about, you can have all the book marks you want or whatever, but we really need to make it as priority as parents, uh, as fathers to unblur the fantasy from the reality and move towards more of the reality. So I'd like to kind of, uh, close off this interview with your opinions and, and experience on that and what we can do as parents moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you say, it's a hugely overlooked but significant subject. So it's, it's going to be hard to do it justice in, in, in a short answer now. Yeah, I acknowledge um, that. Yeah. And, you know, we can signpost people to other resources and, and, and take the bigger conversation separately. But so the first thing I'll do is, is sort of caveat that the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Right. So in both these aspects, the natural disasters and the man-made, there is a, a litany of information we can access that can legitimately tell us what we need to be expecting and what we need to be preparing for and what we will need to manage in those. Um, but we don't because we're lazy or we don't need it or it's inconvenient. And this is the main one is it makes for uncomfortable reading. People don't want to think of being in that situation. So avoidance is key. And mm. one of the, the classics and the biggest frustration that Selk and I had for many years, and sadly from the American side of the preparedness community, was that it'll never happen here syndrome. Oh, but Selko, you write about this, but it, you know, and, and I, I even put on this screechy voice when we have our conversations, it'll never happen here, Selko. <laughs> right? Because that's how it like really grates like fingers on a chalkboard now. It'll never happen here. Okay, so you're going to ignore all this voice uh, advice because never in America could this thing happen. Okay. Hmm. And now we get to today, and there's a lot of people sitting at home now are uh, going to be present on a situation that if you'd have asked them three years ago, could this happen? in whatever country you're in, um, would be categorically saying, 
that absolutely could never happen here. And yet it's it's not only happened, it's happening and it's worsening. All right. Now, the That's point correct. we make on this, the, the unblurring the man-made and natural disasters, the best summary I can give you here is the blur is you sort of think they're the same thing and they're not. What nature dishes out to us is relatively sort of known. Um, and depending on the sort of natural threats you face, whether it's hurricanes or you mentioned power outages or this and the other, the community typically has quite robust, good applied knowledge from that because anybody that came up with a stupid idea in a bad time died. And so only good knowledge survived. So it's just applying that good knowledge. The man-made is where it gets squiffy because we get to write our own histories and history is always written by the winner. Right. Uh, or if you need to read the history that's written by the loser, you've really got to dive deep and start to do your research and start to read very, very uncomfortable things that will absolutely challenge your worldview, especially when you think you're the good guys through history and you suddenly realize you're not. OK, I'm British by birth. My wife's Indian. We have had some incredibly uncomfortable conversations about my misinformed history of colonial rule of India to put it lightly <laughs> okay <laughs> and i'm i'm only reciting what i was taught in school and we were taught in school you know we went to india and we did a lot of good things and we we, we built a beautiful country and we gave it back to them and, and away we went and she's giving me an ever so slightly different version okay I can imagine i did not know what partition was and I, I will throw that challenge out to listeners do you know what partition is and if you don't just google india partition you get a Wikipedia page and then you start to think like, okay, maybe that was a bit rough then. And I don't want to be flippant about this uh, for anybody with Indian relatives or in Indian heritage. Um, it's a very serious subject, but sometimes when it's so dark, you have to be lighthearted because that's a coping mechanism. So the unblurring is to acknowledge. So first of all, the, the man-made uh, is, is typically much more misinformed. And once humans start to manage disaster it gets really bad really fast yeah. uh, nature just kind of does what nature does and it cycles through and it goes away like a hurricane like a tornado and a lot of bad things happen but then we will sort of rebuild or relocate once it gets man-made we've we've got to be prepared for a far rougher time for far longer and this is to do with power dynamics a little bit like group dynamics, isn't it? Once we get people in power, we historically know they'll never want to give it up. And the more powerful become, the less benevolence is present. And so with that in mind, from the geopolitical all the way down to the macro, and this can be a, a very low level power position in your local community, but people that really wield and abuse that power. Um, what is the driving association in the US? I think that's the best example. It's not the, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yeah, Department of Motor Vehicles. Right. Everyone's got that experience, that story of like, here's this thing that you need that's like vital to your everyday existence. But that clerk's going to like make you bleed for it because they understand the power <laughs> of their right, position yeah. in that moment. Right. Yeah. Again, not to be flippant. So that's where we're looking in, in, the, in the greatest summary I can give you in this time. That unblurring is around that is and facing the reality and actuality of what man-made disasters look like and go through and feel. Great, that's a wonderful answer. Last question, and then we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, I want you to just take a moment and imagine as though you are at a, your local hospital visiting a friend to celebrate the birth of their new child. And uh, you got a call coming up, but you, know, you wanna, you gotta get going. You leave the hospital. As you're walking out, you're walking through the birthing center and you happen to pass by a young man who's looking through the window at his newborn baby. And you just kind of stop and you appreciate that moment for a second and he catches your eye and he, and he says, yeah, just uh, my wife just delivered, everything's healthy and uh, it's my first baby. And and you kind of just nod at it and you say, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I have two myself and been there, I, I know how it feels. And he looks at you and he said, and you could see that he's in a place of, uh, you know, I'm scared. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to protect this. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this, all the things. You've got an opportunity to share with him one thing that you've learned in this experience, in this path of being a father. Uh, and if you were to go back to that moment 17 years ago, 
What in that short period of time would you give to that new father from your own experience, Toby? <laughs> the spontaneous one is that whatever anyone's told you until now, they all lied. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's going to be way worse than you think it's going to be, <laughs> but that's not going to help the chap at all, is it? So, um, so seriously, what am I going to say? First of all, congratulations. You know, that's amazing. Well done. Um, and why well done? Because, you know, we focus on the moms in pregnancy quite rightly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's the most important job is, is delivering that baby safely into the world. But, you know, dad's just starting to deal with the baby now, but he's dealt with mom for the last nine months. <laughs> so, so well done until this point, because it is challenging for both, for both partners in, in, in that situation. I think, you know, in that moment, you're so overwhelmed, not much is going to stick. So I, it needs to be, uh, it'd have to be succinct and to the point. And so I would get it down to probably this. The work starts now, do it right. But you can do yeah. it, you know, because there is that crushing sensation of responsibility, you know, as that baby comes out and it's like, cool, I made that, but like, now the work starts, right? And so I think we, we often hear within, within various spaces around empowerment, you know, a lot around female empowerment is absolutely right and good work needs to be done there. But male empowerment in the terms, I think that we tend to keep things a lot more down low, a lot more hidden, especially on the emotive side. Absolutely. And we can do a lot more together as a male community to kind of look out for each other and be more encouraging and no, I'm not going to say emotional necessarily. Look at me, I'm a six foot skinhead for God's sake. But to just, you know, fist bump a, a bit more often, you know, to, to not just slap it on the back and be like, ah, you'll be fine. Just have those more meaningful conversations um, around those historic threshold moments in life or just general mental health terms. Um, because, you know, we look at the stats and we see it in the suicides, male suicide, seven times female in Western worlds there's clearly a problem and, and managing those expectations and managing those pressures falls very heavily on male shoulders. I'm not saying mm, it doesn't yeah. fall on female shoulders. It's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm saying, you know, we tend to be a lot more on our own. So what I'd want to do for that young man that was in that position, I was 17 years ago, feeling that exact sensation is just kind of know there's a culture or a community around me that sort of says it, it's tough, but you can do it. You know, let's acknowledge it's tough. It's not all sunshines and rainbows. You know, that's right. Um, and we go from there. Wonderful. Well, Toby, this brings us to the end. Uh, I would love for you to share uh, with all of the listeners, viewers and guests uh, what you have going on now and how they can connect with you uh, to be able to learn from you, get value from you. Uh, what, what do we got going on? Absolutely. So just before I do that, I just want to go back to a point you made uh, a, a couple of points ago of kind of this whole conversation came full circle. And yeah. we covered a lot. Um, yeah. We've talked about some techniques and some tactics and this and the other, but then let's go right back to the beginning where I said what we introduced was the model and the model so important and so useful because that's the framework that you structure everything off. So for people, if we're beyond the young dad now, for people that find this a bit overwhelming, I'm like, how, whoa, how am I meant to do this? I've meant to take the kids camping at weekends and work on conversations on weekdays and, you know, go back to that model and just look at like, what parts have you got comprehensively covered? What parts are missing? And just build that module, increment that model incrementally, strongly and stably. And then you're on your way. That's why we like the model reference so much because it gives you a reference point to go back to routinely and be like, what do I need to work on now? As you sort of tick each thing off your to-do list off, okay? So what have I got going on now is more around that, is putting together online content that go through all of the models in a, in a very structured, appropriately detailed, but sufficiently um, brief manner. So people can take greater ownership of this because as you know from attending my courses, as I always say, the one thing I'll guarantee in the survival situation is I won't be there with you. And if I am, I'll knock you out and I'll steal your stuff and run away. Okay. So, <laughs> so what we've got to do is get that knowledge out there. So um, you've been obviously a huge contribution in terms of generation of the online content. And we've got some things to release there. Um, a lot of the online stuff's going out on Patreon. 
um, and you'll put a link, uh, I'm assuming, in the comments. Absolutely. On that. The Resilience Hub, Absolutely. so just look for the Resilience Hub on Patreon and you've got us there. If you want to connect with me individually, my preferred platform right now is LinkedIn because I'm finding the other social media incredibly tiresome and, and just too polarizing to want to deal with, whereas LinkedIn yeah. has managed to maintain a degree of decorum. So just search for Toby Cowan, C-O-W-E-R-N, uh, and you'll find me there on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect there. Um, and that's the main thing. I've, a lot of what I've been doing lately, streamlining things down instead of having like, you know, multiple platforms but that just, as you know, as an online specialist, just suck the time and joy out of you managing Absolutely. them all. I'm yeah. really just trying to streamline it saying, if you want to find me, find me there. Um, because those are the things I'm looking at more often. You'll, you'll see me dancing around on YouTube and Facebook, but a lot of that's kind of historical archives type, type stuff now. It's not that active anymore because it's just, it's, it's just, yeah, the fun's gone out of it, to be honest with you. So LinkedIn, Patreon, that's me. Great. Toby, thank you so much for joining us uh, here. It means so much to me. Uh, it really does. And uh, the fact that you agreed to sharing your knowledge and your experience uh, with this community was uh, was just a real, it felt like a victory for me. And I knew that so many people were going to get so much from you. So look forward to continuing this discussion. I know that was a real, just a kind of a, a real fast summary of a lot of things. And we can go miles deep on so many things and i look forward to having that opportunity uh, later on with you so thank you so much you're welcome and one thing i'll just say in conclusion not only thanks for listening but please do give us your feedback and comments i think it's yeah. it's hard for people they, they they maybe don't think they've got anything to add even just that one word you know or two words enjoyed it means so much to us as content creators you know i'm sat on the other side of the world staring at the screen for hours every day putting stuff out there hoping it helps and you kind of never know if it does so if if anything at all was was good or useful or enjoyable or educationalist please let adam sensei know and then he'll pass it on to me because that just kind of makes us feel like wow okay great we got a result absolutely some somebody somebody got some help or if it absolutely. didn't help tell us why it didn't help because then we can adjust that we can get better in time as avi sensei says as you know always a student sometimes a teacher so we're right. students ourselves so we're always looking to improve so please do be active in the commentary or the feedback as appropriate absolutely thank you so much toby I want to thank you for spending time with us on this episode today. It's truly appreciated. I hope you got some value from it. If you want to go ahead and leave any comments or questions, reach out to me directly. I personally answer all of the questions that you have. If you know someone like yourself who may find value in this episode, then please go ahead and share it. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe to Close Quarter Dad. This way you get updated every time a new episode comes out, wherever you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode of Close Quarter Dad.